Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach, and I'm really excited about today's show. If you're actually watching this on on video, uh, you'll see that I'm here for my first segment with Jameer Abney, Coordinator of Outreach for Opportunity and Inclusion at Colgate University. That's a mouthful, but I think it's descriptive, so that's good. Uh, Jameer and I will be discussing affirmative, affirmative action, what it is and what it means for applicants. Um, And I want to be really clear that we're also talking about what it means for students who are not sort of going to be admitted under affirmative action, so to speak. So I really hope that everybody listens in on this so that you get a full understanding of how it impacts college admissions, because honestly, the impact is a lot less than most people seem to think. Um, But before we get to that, I want to describe my other segments today. The second segment is going to be with Joy, College Coach Educational Consultant. She and I are going to be holding office hours addressing how students who haven't yet applied to college can still do so. And yes, there is still time, not for the most selective colleges, but there is still time. And so for the third segment, Chrissy Foran, finance consultant with College Coach, will be explaining what you need to know about financial aid and merit award letters from colleges. So welcome, Jameer. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being on here. And I'm really grateful because... um, Um, I think that there really is just so much confusion about what affirmative action is, how it impacts students, you know, so I really would love to have you just start with kind of a basic definition of what is affirmative action. Yes, no problem. So um, if you heard the term affirmative action, it goes back um, several um, decades here in the U.S. in the college admissions process. And basically, it is a way for us on the admissions side to consider um, equity in the, in the education process and really think about students coming from different backgrounds, whether it's how they identify racial and ethnically, gender, um, religious background, um, international students, et cetera, and just to account for those nuanced differences and what their experience might have been and take that into account when we're reviewing applications. And you hear the term holistic admissions, and that's really thinking about just looking at all of the different factors and using that in the decision. Mm -hmm. So kind of in the same way that a student from North Dakota might actually be admitted affirmatively, so to speak, because there's so few students from certain states with low populations that maybe that student has a little easier time than a student, at least standing out, than a student from California. Is that kind of one way to think about it? Feel free to disagree, by the way. Yeah, if you consider geography, like where a university is located and where they typically see their students coming from across the United States and definitely thinking about things like, hey, we don't have very many students from this area. The students are interesting. They fit within our academic profile. They jump out more than a student that's say right here in your backyard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. And so I want to clarify something right away because I run into this all the time. So it doesn't sound like affirmative action means quotas, that colleges are not being told you have to bring in 10% class of students of color. Nothing like that's going on. 
No, not at all. They're not like a number of designated spaces, a quota or a number of seats um, for students. It's more so thinking about broad picture, how you're looking at students from different locations, again, different identifiers, and just trying to be more equitable in that process, given the different um, demographics and personality traits, academic traits, et cetera, that students um, are bringing with them into the application process. Mm -hmm. But those other traits are never going to weight more than like academic qualifiers, for example. I mean, students always have to be academically qualified, no matter who. Correct. If a student, we don't feel like they're going to be able to do the work and aren't going to be able to be successful, ultimately that's important to us first. And mm -hmm. wanting to make sure that also we um, have the resources to allow them to be able to be successful. And you hear people talk about fit um, as part of that conversation. And so it could be like thinking about academic fit and where they're coming from, but also the social and resource support that's um, available on a campus to ensure that student that might be coming from a very unique um, demographic or geographical background, and it's gonna be a big transition, is the university providing what they need in order to be successful? That's part of the conversation too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I think is interesting is when I talk to um when I talk to families about this, they sort of always go first to affirmative action as sort of a reason their kid didn't get in. And there's not usually the discussion of, um, and I'm not, I'm not um, criticizing colleges for doing this, but for example, athletes have a much bigger kind of thumb on the scale, if you will, in terms of meeting, uh, you know, being allowed to meet kind of less of an academic criteria. And I think that became really clear uh, with the Varsity Blues scandal, like how much of an advantage an athlete, a recruited athlete, I want to be very clear, only if you're recruited might have. So um, with affirmative action, so to speak, it's really kind of a lighter thumb on the scale. It's just one of sort of many of these broad criteria that you're talking about. Would you say that that's accurate? I think I think it's different. Like you said, recruited athletes, um, a different um, community, a different recruitment process um, than what the general student will go through. I think when you're talking about athletics, it does present a unique challenge, but also a lot of times people are thinking about Division One, bigger schools, the schools we see on TV and NCAA athletics versus, mm -hmm. say, a smaller school that's an NC2A Division Three program or NAIA, NAIA, which is a different system um, than the NC2A. So different things to think about where something like athletics will fit, but also conversations when you think about um, factors in the admissions process is a student a legacy um, coming from a family where they've had parents or grandparents that have gone to the school. Um, is a student coming from a demographic or socioeconomic background where they can afford to pay um, full tuition and fees? And what does that um, add to the conversation? So lots of different factors when you think about kind of putting that tip on the scale of where they fall um, in terms of their ability to be more competitive in the process and all things that we on this side have to think about um, in a holistic admissions review to be sure we're being as equitable as possible. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's listened to this show should know basically what holistic admissions means, but essentially it means we're no, you know, these more selective colleges are looking at a variety of different factors. They're looking definitely at the transcript. That's always the cornerstone, the test scores, if they are required and or provided in a test optional situation, but looking at teacher recommendations, looking at um, activities, looking at the kind of essay the student wrote, all to figure out, is this student going to be a good, as you said, it fit for this institution? What are they going to bring to the institution as well as what are they going to get out of the institution? So um, I was wondering if you, you like 
I, I don't want you, obviously, a lot of the work you do is confidential, and that's as it should be. But I was wondering if you could kind of take us through, like, an example or two of how it might work in the committee process. Um, you know, is that something that you might be able to do? Like, give give some kind of specific examples of some of the competing interests that you might be thinking out about with any given candidate? So, this is different depending upon institution, what that might look like. Obviously, um, one of the cool things a lot of colleges will do now is um, actually go through case studies um, with students and allow them the opportunity to kind of be an admission officer and practice is something we've done um, with parents, with alumni, with our own mm-hmm. um, student interns as well. Um, this year is part of their training process to kind of better understand uh, what it is that we do. Um, I think in thinking about a committee conversation, you brought up a, a varsity athlete, um, for example. Mm-hmm. And so you have a student that's maybe a recruited athlete, but do they fall at a level where there is concern about their academics or have they not taken a certain level of courses, even within that conversation where coaches, recruiters may be really interested, but there's concern. Um, that may be something that you bring to the table or you have students where you talk about geography earlier and being interested in bringing more students from a particular state where you don't see them, but then having to have a conversation around, okay, the student is from this place, but maybe they're too much like most of the students we typically see in terms of other demographic factors. Um, maybe it's a conversation about um, a student who, from a so- uh, socioeconomic background perspective, there's like, hey, the student is from North Dakota, but they're not as interesting as this student from, say, New York, who's bringing a more um, diverse background or a different and unique approach than what we typically see in our wider student body. Uh, so there are definitely a lot of different things that you kind of push and pull and weigh when you're looking at students, even if they bring one factor, there may be something that you say, well, this, this, there's some other interests um, in other places when you're starting to think about kind of building the full class. But I think one of the great things is a lot of it is taking within the context of their school where they're coming from and really trying to compare them to students who are within um, their demographic and coming from a similar place, um, similar high school or the same school if you have multiple applications versus trying to look at students who just you can't really compare the apple to the orange in, in one way when you think about completely different um, types of students, types of um, communities and experiences, but definitely wanting to be conscious of at the end when you're building the class and you're thinking about your community, are you offering your students the opportunity to grow and continue to develop as young people? And as they go into their adult life to take that with them into the world as they represent your institution in, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what hopefully is coming across here is just how complex the entire process is. I mean, you know, just overall, there's so many different competing interests. And so it can be really challenging, like when I'm talking to people to try and explain why it isn't any one thing. Um, So I was wondering if, um, and let's talk about like, I mean, we've already, I think, touched on this, but do you have any kind of a sense of what percentage of colleges have affirmative action, like just in kind of a general rule? I mean, I don't know the exact percentage, but my sense is that it's really, well, I'm quite confident that it's a very small minority of colleges, actually. So what's your take on that? I think that's hard to say because I don't know that it's like something you'd see like on the admission page somewhere or something Mm -hmm. that's like externally visual or communicated out, but at least my understanding, especially for any place that's talking about a quote holistic review, that's that's everybody because you're taking into account a lot of different factors when you're looking at 
all the different parts of an application Mm -hmm. and also because of the legal background of the term affirmative action and the cases that go with that if you look at the history of it there's some level of responsibility to think about equity in the process and so different ways that colleges and universities are doing that and different things that take that into account Mm -hmm. Um, but anytime I think you're saying the word holistic or hearing admission officers talk about a holistic review they're considering all of the different factors which I think affirmative action feeds into that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good way to think about it, you know, and, and I think people don't realize, I mean, there's around what, 4,000 four-year colleges. And the fact is that most of them admit the vast majority. And so they might not be doing really holistic admission. And then there's institutions like when I worked at Whittier, we did holistic admission for honestly a fairly small group of students because most of the students were qualified and would just get in. So that's the other piece too, is that even if you have holistic admission, in general, probably there are colleges where a majority of the students are just going to get in and there's just a quick scan for any red flags in the essay or in the recommendations, you know, anything that might be concerning, right? And of course, most students don't have those things. So then they go, you know, straight to admission. So, um, yeah, so I think that, I think that that is really important to note. What, um, what do you think, like, if you're talking to people about, affirmative action like what do you think is always the most important thing to them for them to know about it I think one of the biggest things is um, as you go back and forth and look at again kind of the legal cases is who it's ended up helping the most versus um, who it was kind of I guess initially designed for and that there are still um, when you think about diversity and learn along racial and ethnic lines, lots of things that um, we're still trying to do to continue to be more diverse and be more equitable in our processes as um, college admissions counselors. And so within that, um, it's created a lot of conversation around, well, did this meet kind of the goal that it was intended to uh, for students from diverse and racial ethnic backgrounds versus um, students that are maybe um, gender um, women versus men in that in the college admissions process or students who are coming from different income backgrounds and other Mm -hmm. other types of demographics that you can take into account. So there continues to be conversation around in a process like are we accounting for all of the right things and truly being as equitable as we want to be? So who, could you give us a brief history lesson? I know it's tough to do in just a few minutes, but we we do have a few minutes left, so I'd love to hear. Well, some of, some of the conversation um, is around uh, men and women in the process and women being given access early on. And there's some conversation around um, students who identify as Asian American and where they fit um, in the process. And then conversation as you get into more different demographic, racial and ethnic groups, I think more recently access when we talk about that, you're thinking about um, black students um, and African-American students, Hispanic and Latino students um, more so. Um, in that process, the most underrepresented groups, when you think about higher education, um, Native American, Alaskan Native um, students as well. And so it you kind of get down a rabbit hole um, when you mm-hmm. start to think about it, because the, the data shows that in general, it's women who have um, been most successful in that process, when a lot of the bigger conversation at times is about race and ethnicity um, within who's being admitted. And so it just, it creates a really tough push and pull I think to say, okay, is this actually doing what we set out to do? But also, are there other things in the process that we can do to just get more of those students in the pool? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, what's going to benefit, I think, I think a piece that a lot of people don't realize too is I read a study and I'm not able to, um, 
kind of get the exact details right, but it said something like students who are in the lowest um, 25% in terms of income, often underrepresented um, students of color, who are at the very top of their class have less chance of going to college than students who are in the very bottom, but who are well off. So in other words, the strongest students who are low income are far more disadvantaged in terms of getting into college, um, you know, than the very weakest students who are at the higher levels of income. Is that information that you've come across as well? I don't know that I've seen that direct study, but it doesn't necessarily surprise me because I think about, we think about just access to resources and understanding like how to get to college. If you're coming from a family where that's prevalent or resources are prevalent, then you're, you may be thinking about that sooner than the student who's coming from a tougher income background, lower income background, less resources, maybe a school where you have a counselor that has a load of over a hundred students that they're trying to manage. You may just not be getting that one-to-one support. You may not be being introduced to colleges and universities early. People like me may not be visiting um, your your high school and talking to you about those options. So, um, but I think one of the great things is you see things like community-based organizations, um, national programs like a QuestBridge um, Scholar Program, Posse Scholars, those types of things to try to introduce that to students sooner and get them thinking about their post K through 12 options and what's available to them, which for some students, college may not be the fit. It may be technical school or technical programs or other types of um, programs that allow them to be successful and build the type of life that they're looking for. It doesn't mean you have to end up at a four-year college or university, but understanding your options is one of the things that we continue to work on and just help students see everything that's out there. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a really great point that you're making. I love that you brought up um, some of these organizations that can help students. Like if we have somebody listening right now who thinks I want to help my son or my daughter go to college, you know, uh, my student is in ninth grade, like what are agencies or organizations I can go to to get help since at my high school, the counseling staff, you know, my, my student is one of 400. I mean, which is literally the case at some high schools, some public high schools. So where would you point a student to who might need a little, might need a little help? I think first you want to look in your backyard. Are there regional or city-based organizations near you that you can work with? I know a lot of um, colleges actually have these programs that lead back in their local community. So maybe the local community college or a local four-year institution, um, asking the counselor if they know of these community organizations. Um, sometimes you'll think, see things like through like a local YMCA or through um, the city government or their county government offering resources and programs that they might do. So I think just asking questions of leaders in your local community, teachers, um, people who are out in the community doing um, service or other types of outreach can be really useful. Some of those national organizations are much more competitive and harder um, to get in touch with. But if you have something in your backyard, that can be kind of your stepping stone into some of those opportunities. And especially if you have even a two-year college nearby, they may allow you to do enroll and take courses there and add to um, your capability and preparation. Or they might have a program that allows students to get support, advising, and mentorship to get them to the four-year university might be interested in. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Any last, I mean, we have two minutes left if you want it, or we can move on. So just any last things you want to close with? This has been great. 
I think one of the biggest things um, is when you think about the term affirmative action or you look at the admissions process is, like you said, it's complicated. And there isn't one thing or another that's the reason why you didn't get in where you wanted to get in or you are being admitted to the place that you're interested in. And I think ultimately for students, when you start down the pathway, have a wide net, look at a lot of different places, ask a lot of questions, talk to students um, at the colleges you're interested in. And people like me who, I'm a first-gen college grad, um, I hadn't gone through this process, I didn't intern in my admission office, I ended up at a college I had never heard of um, before I was a junior in high school, and now I do this work. And there are lots of people like me who are in this field because they wanna give back and they wanna be those representatives. And so look for people like me, look for people who are doing diversity recruitment, um, who have positions that are focused on that type of outreach to work with the organizations like the ones I talked about because we can be the people that even if it's not our college or university we might be able to point you in the direction to another institution or other resources that can help you get there if that's something you're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Okay great thank you so much Jameer I really really appreciate it. Uh, no problem thanks for having me. Okay. All right. So we're going to be taking a short break, but when we return, Joy and I will be giving advice to seniors who haven't yet applied to college. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now... Back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Joy. How are you doing today? I'm well, Sally. How are you? I'm good, thank you. All right, so we are talking about, this is our office hour segment where we answer the nitty-gritty questions, Um, and today we're talking about whether it's too late to apply to college if you are a senior. Now, I will admit that when I talk to a senior at this date who has not started applying everywhere, anywhere, I do get a little jolt of panic. But the truth is that there are still options. So let's let's talk about that. Yeah, there's actually lots of options, uh, more than I realized. And in preparing for our conversation today, I did a little bit of research and, and realized that there are actually several hundred colleges in the U.S. and overseas that are still accepting applications from seniors. Overseas might be a little bit challenging right now, given the pandemic, but mm-hmm. there are lots of options. I, like you, get a little bit nervous to say, oh, what's out there? But I was 
pleasantly surprised to see the availability for seniors who are thinking about applying to college now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think I checked just the common application and we should I'm going to ask you to go in, um, you know, in just a second into how students can can find colleges that are still available. But I checked in one place and I found 583 colleges that are clearly have later deadlines. Like, so I was pretty excited for students about that. So, yeah, what yeah. are what are you suggesting for students who are in this position? So I actually have three resources that I looked into that were really helpful in finding colleges that are still accepting applications. Um, the first that I looked at was the common application. So um, I logged into uh, my common application account. And if a student doesn't have a common app account yet, they can very easily create one. And within the application, there's a college search tab. And uh, what it, it has filters. I mean, you could type in a specific college name to, to look and see when its deadline is. But there are also filters that you can search on. And there are a lot of filters. It's everything from country, U.S. state, if you're looking for a specific state, distance from home, so you would put in your zip code, uh, the term that you're looking to apply. So for seniors, it, it's most likely fall of 2021. Um, uh, the deadline or after, so you can actually put in a specific date. You can also decide if you're looking for schools that um, don't have an application fee, if you are a domestic student, so a U.S. resident, um, or if you're an international student, you're looking to see if there's a fee that's uh, waived for international students applying. You can also check to see if the college uh, requires either the personal statement, which is the college essay that goes along with the common application, or if they have any um, college-specific essays that need to be written, and even if they require letters of recommendation. So you can really narrow that search to find out what colleges are still um, accepting applications through the Common App. Um, and what I did is I put in, I did a simple search, and I just said with deadlines either today or after today, and I came up with 680 colleges that were still accepting applications through the Common App. Um, the other thing, so that was really helpful to know that there one place you could find a lot of different schools. Um, the other resource that I looked at was um, on the NACAC website. So NACAC is short for the National Association for College Admission Counseling. And I did a quick search that said, NACAC, colleges still accepting applications. That was my Google search. And it too, uh, the, the, um, the site that popped up, it's the college openings update. And, and NACAC it's, uh, publishes this. It's a voluntary list of colleges that co colleges have volunteered their information to say that, yes, they're still accepting applications. And there were a lot. So uh, what I did was I filtered just on New York State. That's the state that I grew up in. And I know that there are a lot of colleges in New York. So I just filtered to see what came up. And there were, let me check, um, there were a whole list of colleges that came up in New York. I think there were close to 60 that were listed. And two surprised me. Um, one was Fordham University. And the other was Syracuse University. Because wow. I know their deadlines have passed. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So I went onto their websites to check to see if the information um, was accurate. And they both had notes that said, while our application deadline has passed, we're still accepting applications. Now, for Syracuse, it said we're still accepting applications on on um on an, an uh, available basis. And then Fordham said, we're still accepting applications, but we can't guarantee that you'll have your decision by April 1st, which is mm-hmm. kind of the date by which you hear from colleges that have a, a deadline. Mm-hmm. So um, I was surprised to see that um, because I knew they had deadlines. But what was most interesting for me for those two resources is that most of the colleges on the list have offer rolling admissions. So they Mm -hmm. don't have a deadline. They're making decisions as they're receiving applications. So while certain majors might be filling up, though are more popular may have been, um, may have received a lot of applications already, there are still opportunities to apply to many, many schools, um, some small, some quite large. I mean, um, just two as an example, um, Arizona State University in Arizona and Clemson on the East Coast, they're both uh, use rolling admissions. Mm -hmm. So students can still apply. And Eckerd College in Florida, which has a great marine science program, also offers rolling admission. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're just starting to think about the college process now or ready to submit your applications now, there are still options. Um, and then the last resource, which I found was really the most helpful, was I took out the NACAC from the search and I just searched on colleges that are still accepting applications. And the College Board Big Future site came up and it lists colleges that are still accepting applications by deadline date. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a single school that had an application deadline of yesterday, and then it listed all the schools that have deadlines of February 15th, March 1st, and it just continued on and on. I think several of those schools that you might have a deadline of August 10th, that actually might be rolling and they might give a deadline to indicate "Mm, that's when classes start or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, But it was a lot easier to find really good options. Um, It was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Mm I mean, it makes sense. Like I, when I worked at Whittier, we had a rolling deadline and there were certainly advantages to applying early. I mean, I don't want some junior to listen to this and say, cool, I have a lot of time, you know. Um, I mean, at Whittier, we had uh, scholarships that were limited to students who were applying earlier. So, uh, I mean, there were scholarships that weren't, but you really, it was to your advantage to get the application in, you know, by January 1, definitely. And there was even some scholarships that were like, October 15th when I worked there. Um, But absolutely, there are a lot of options and some very good ones, as you highlighted. I mean, Fordham Mm -hmm. and Syracuse, these are great schools. These are nationally known institutions. So absolutely. Um, Yeah. And oh, I just want to say there were a few colleges that I 
um, was surprised that their deadlines were as late as they were. For February 15th, there were three schools that I've talked to students and families about quite recently. Um, two smaller college, small liberal arts colleges, Allegheny and the College of Worcester, both mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. options. They're um, within the list of colleges that change lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're smaller. But if you're looking for a medium-sized university, College of Charleston, which has almost 10,000 undergrads, that has a February 15th deadline as well. So, you know, there there are schools out there that if they were on your radar, but you may have taken them off at some point, you might want to take a closer look again because they're, they're still options. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Joy. That was really helpful. Sure. Happy to talk to you, Sally. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Chrissy. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, you, your information is definitely as crucial as anything I have to say. So <laughs> um, I actually had a student once who was comparing award letters from Pomona and USC, and it was very confusing. And I actually was confused too, but sat down. Um, Pomona ended up giving the better award package by far. So just going to put out a little plug for them. Yeah, um, we, we talk to parents all the time about award letters and they, you know, want to compare things and they have no idea what's on there. And it's amazing how different they can be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not anyway. Um, so why, why don't we get into the basics here? Like, what is a financial aid award letter? Sure, absolutely. So those of you that have never had kids in college before, once your child is award or is uh, admitted into the college that they've applied to, um, basically, soon after that, you get an award letter. And the financial aid award letter is basically just how um, financial aid um, offices at colleges let you know what your child's going to qualify for in terms of financial aid to help pay for college at their institution. Um, it's really intended to help families try to find a way to fill the gap between what their ability to pay is, which is your expected family contribution from the FAFSA, um, between that and then what the college costs or what the college will call their cost of attendance. So you're trying to figure out a way to fill that gap. Mm -hmm. Um, 
basically after you get the re or after you receive the award letter, um, they might ask you to return a signed copy of the letter where you reject any financial aid you don't want, you accept any financial aid you do want. Um, but as you said, Sal, you need, you know, it's really important to keep in mind that these letters aren't standardized um, throughout any colleges in the nation. They all look different. They all have different information, different numbers. A lot of them even have different terms that will describe the same kind of aid. So mm -hmm. important that you really, you know, decipher them carefully and read through them and ask for help if you need it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And how do schools typically send them? Um, it just kind of depends on the school. You know, back when I was in financial aid offices, everything was done on paper and we would send these big, pretty glossy folders and mm -hmm. things like that. But I think nowadays most of schools are using electronic methods. So they can still send a letter or package in the mail, but um, chances are they're going to, especially with uh, larger schools, they're, you know, trying to use less paper these days and, and save the planet. Um, so they tend to post award letter information um, in the student's portal. Um, on the school's website. So the school will usually send the student um, an email. Um, it won't go to the parents, it'll go to the student and it'll tell them how they can check the portal. They'll have a username and password to you know, log into their portal. So it is important as a, you know, for parents to remind their students or their, their kids to check their emails, especially right now, check it every day, if not every other day. Um, just to make sure they're not missing anything important to let them know that that's already out there because I do hear from a lot of parents that they haven't heard, which is okay, but just make sure you're checking all available areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of students who don't check email and I'm like, yeah. if you work with me, you're checking email. And if you apply to college, you're checking email. So that policy is yeah. going to change. And parents, uh, I have a lot of parents that say, you know, I don't want to hound them. I don't want to, I want to make sure I'm not, you know, talking to them about it too much. And they're going to make me, I'm going to make them crazy. It's like, no, this is the time you need to really make sure they're, they're checking that every day. Yeah, without a doubt. Or, or yeah, just remind them that it, it's that or the loss potentially of thousands of dollars. So absolutely. Yeah, because it all has timelines and deadlines to respond. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so when can people expect them then? I mean, obviously, around now, you kind of talked about that. But is there sort of a timeline depending on when they get the letter or? Yeah, I mean, there is kind of a general timeline, but it really depends on the school. So I mean, like I said earlier, typically you, you receive financial aid letters after you've been admitted to the school. Um, timelines really can run anywhere from February to March to even early April, um, unfortunately, for some schools, because the, the process is that the, the student has to be admitted first. And then once they're admitted, then the financial aid office can work on their file. So if they're not being admitted into the school until March or April, you know, like some schools are, are we're seeing do that this year, then they're not going to hear about that until, you know, a few weeks after that. So mm -hmm. if your child's applying early decision or early action, sometimes the school will send the financial aid information at the same time as the admissions decision, because if you're applying one of those, they, they kind of want you to have that information. But again, it's up to the school to determine timelines. So it is important to make sure that you're submitting your FAFSA by each school's deadline, just to ensure that you do have timely delivery so you can do the comparisons and make a good decision. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. And so how do you decipher? I mean, we talked about how these award letters are really different from school to school. So how do like how do you advise people decipher them? Uh, it's yeah, award letters look very different. And I'm always amazed by the different verbiage that's used and the different language to describe the awards. But um, so, for example, some schools will include their total cost of attendance for the year. So they will, on the award letter, let you know what the tuition and fees are for the year, what the room and board would typically look like, what the book fees might look like. 
Um, and so they'll tell you everything that you kind of need to know in terms of how to compare that board letter, which those are direct and indirect costs. Other schools may only include the direct costs, and those would just be things they bill you directly, like tuition and fees, maybe room and board, but nothing else. So when you're comparing colleges and awards, it's really important that you know what the total costs are for each school so mm -hmm. that you can accurately compare one college to another. Mm -hmm. um, typically, when you're reading the actual awards themselves, hopefully they will have words included like scholarship or grant or you know student loan or the word loan um, so that you can kind of know what's a free award versus what's an award you have to pay back. Um, but again, not every award letter will contain the same information. So, you know, you need to make sure that you're looking up any acronyms they might use. Financial aid's very famous for using acronyms um, or terminology. Um, the funny thing is, is they did a study um, back in 2018. Um, a couple of different companies did a study where they reviewed qualitative reviews of um, different award letters at different colleges. And they reviewed 515 different award letters from different institutions they found that of those, 70% of those letters, they grouped all of the aid together and had no definitions to like indicate to students how grants and scholarships or loans, how any of that differed or work study. Um, and one third of those did not include any cost information that they could contextualize any financial aid offered. Um, mm -hmm. 40% calculated what students would need to pay, but they had different ways of calculating. So it's unfortunate, but award letters can be very confusing. So it is something, you know, parents can schedule calls and talk with us. They can talk with the university financial aid office to try to really make sure they understand exactly what's being offered and what the costs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, I mean, one of the things I want to highlight for people is that at this point you are the, you're the buyer, right? Like mm -hmm. you've now been admitted. So they want to matriculate you. So yes. call that financial aid office, call that office and ask for help. You have been admitted now. I mean, you should ask for help even beforehand, but like Correct. there's extra incentive at this point. So yeah, because there's a lot of, you know, they may not know that they're taking out a loan or that they're getting a loan offered to them and they think it's a scholarship or, and I know that financial aid offices like probably like any school, they might be hard to get a hold of right now with the pandemic and everything, but you know, send them an email, make a phone call, leave messages, whatever you can do to get your questions answered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So, and then the question would be, why are there loans on my award notification? I mean, I, I have seen people get kind of frustrated with that. They're like, yeah. excuse me, that's not free money. Like, right. <laughs> that's not right. really an award, which I think is, you know, fair point. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that we discuss a lot in kind of the world of financial aid, whether or not loans should be offered, you know, um, up front to students. But um, federal direct loans are considered, student loans are considered a type of financial aid, number one. So they are, you know, something that schools look at to offer. And some of those federal student loans are actually considered a type of need-based financial aid. So they are in there with the scholarships, the grants, the work study, all of those need-based loans. Um, so there are a lot of schools that will automatically include student loans in the financial aid package that you get sent. Um, like first-time freshmen, they can borrow a maximum of $5,500 in the federal student loan program. And of that loan, $3,500 could be considered interest-free or, or what they call subsidized. And so that is part of a need-based financial aid package. So schools do want to include that because it, it could be an interest-free loan that you're taking out if you need to borrow. Um, the bigger thing is, you know, the parent, the federal parent loan, which they call a plus. Mm -hmm. um, 
that one's important, you know, to, that's important to know acronyms for that award in particular, because I do have a lot of parents that will say, hey, I, I got an award for, you know, $25,000. And if you look closer, it's like, well, that's a plus, And that's actually a, a, a federal loan that you're paying mm-hmm. back. So it's really important that they understand what the free money is, what needs to be repaid and is considered a loan. Um, some schools will include a parent loan as a financial aid award. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of schools are trying to steer away from that now because it is getting confusing. So they have the parents kind of ask for that if that's something they're interested in. But it's just, again, that same study that that we were looking at, you know, earlier, they said that, you know, of those colleges that they studied, 455 of those 515 um, that did offer an unsubsidized student loan, but they had 136 different terms to it for that loan, including 24 that didn't even include the word loan. Right, which is dishonest, I think, frankly. It is. So some schools are using interesting terms and definitions and and words to to offer a loan without really saying it's a loan. So at least um, call it a loan, you know. Exactly. (laughs) And that's exactly. It's like if they would just say loan. And so I talk to parents all the time that say, hey, I have an award letter in front of me. Can I tell you what it says? And they're, you know, sometimes excited. Sometimes they're just so confused. And by the time we get done, it all makes sense. But Mm -hmm. It's just amazing how different they can be. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so work study, that's another thing a lot of um, people have questions about. So what is that? Yeah, so work study, that is another form of um, need-based financial aid that schools can offer. Um, typically, you know, federal, there's federal work study and then there's state work study. So it just depends on how the schools operate as to what they might offer you. But again, work study is something that's need-based. So the information from your FAFSA usually is what determines if you're eligible for that. Um, But it's basically what work study is. It's where the student can basically work part-time on campus and they can earn a paycheck for living expenses. Um, It works very similar to like a regular job. So if your student is awarded work study, again, hopefully it will say work study on the award. Um, But typically what they would have to do if they accept that Um, they have to work with the student employment office on that campus to find what available jobs there are because they do have certain jobs that are earmarked just for work study students. Mm -hmm. But then it's very normal. They have to apply for the jobs. They usually have to go and interview. Um, You can work in various departments on campus. So you can work in administrative offices where you're filing, you know, files or answering telephones or working in labs to clean things up. You can work in the cafeteria or if they have cafes around or if they have an athletic center so there's just it just kind of depends on what jobs are available as actual work study jobs. But um, students, you know, once they're awarded or they, they've been hired, usually they'll work, you know, 10 hours a week, maybe 12 hours a week. Um, it just depends on how much they pay hourly at that campus and how much the financial aid office has awarded you. Mm-hmm. Because usually they'll say, you know, we're going to give you $4,000 that you can earn this year in work study. And so based on how much you get paid each hour, that's how much you can kind of determine how many hours you can work to earn off $4,000 of that. Mm-hmm. But I typically, do, oh, oh, sorry. Ahead. I just like to emphasize to people that there are, depending on the college, there might be a lot of jobs that don't require work study too. So if you need yeah. a job, but you didn't qualify for work yes. study, you can probably still work. Yeah, and that's perfect. Yeah, that's great to to talk about that, too, because most campuses, if they offer work study, they do have a student employment office just in general, that even if you're not offered work study, um, you can still go to the student employment office and and, uh, make sure that they know that you're looking for a job or see what's available that's not considered work study. 
basically the reason for a work study that campuses love that is that the government is reimbursing them for a certain percentage of what mm -hmm. they're paying the student. So it's not costing them as much to hire that student as mm -hmm. it would a normal student. So, but they, yeah, they do have a lot of campuses have um, regular jobs too. And the great thing about working on campus um, I think is that you really can work around your own class schedule. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the campuses that I worked on, we always had to make sure that the student, the, the classes came first, you know, school came first. So mm -hmm. if they might come into our office for two hours in the morning, go to class for two or three hours, and then maybe come in for another two hours in the afternoon. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a great thing for the student. It keeps them on campus. They don't have to, you know, find transportation off campus somewhere. Usually you don't have to work late at night. So Mm -hmm. Student employment or work study, I think, can be a great thing, but hopefully they tell you what it is on the award letter. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hopefully they explain it. But but yeah, it, it's uh, I, I always recommend that students do work study type jobs, too, um, because, yeah, guess what? Finals, they're not going to make you work, probably, you know, things right. like that. They understand yeah. it. Where's your yeah. boss at Subway? He doesn't care. He doesn't exactly. care. He wants you to work. And we, a lot of times, you know, in my financial aid office, we had a couple of different work study students. And a lot of times, if they didn't have anything to do for us, we would just let them study and do their homework. So sometimes you're, depending on where you're working, you're getting paid while you study and, you know, do your homework as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, exactly. But then again, going back to the um, study that we were looking at, they said that of those, the study that they did on award letters, that only 70% or seventy provided no explanation of the work-study award or how it differed from other types of financial aid. So that is the big thing about work-study is that you have to earn it. Mm -hmm. um, so if they award you $4,000, that doesn't mean you get $4,000. It means you have to work enough hours to actually earn that $4,000. Um, and usually it doesn't go back to the institution to pay for tuition. It's usually something that they give you a, a normal paycheck. They take taxes out. They do the whole thing. And then the student can use that for, you know, living expenses or whatever they need to use it for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, I am supposed to sign us out now and then I, but I couldn't find the piece of paper with my notes on it. So if you were wondering why I was looking around, that's what it was. All right. So I think we need to sign off now. So thank you so much, Chrissy. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was fun being here today. Thanks, Sally. All right. And so um, thanks again to Jameer Abney of Colgate and Joy Biscornet of College Coach. Um, do get ready for our show airing February 18th when Beth Heaton will be hosting. She's also going to be covering what we know about colleges test optional policies so um, and how those look going forward. So that's obviously pretty important to all of us. And it's definitely a moving target. So you're going to want to stay up to date on it. Um, she'll also be answering listener questions. And do remember that you can always submit your own questions to us most easily through our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, we're really, we're on all of them. Um, and finally, I just want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can download every show for free on iTunes. And if you want to search for a particular show topic, we have some that are especially popular. Um, so to find them, you can go to our blog page at blog.getintocollege.com. That's blog.getintocollege.com. And last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.